Today's guest on the podcast is Layla Taraf. I love this conversation with her so much. We have more in common than I ever imagined. Um, but she was the chief people officer for Pete's Coffee and Tea, um, the iconic Ber- Berkeley coffee roaster that launched the craft coffee movement in America. But during this time, she had a secret, and that was she was failing in the most important relationships in her life. She was a very strong and effective business leader and the successful daughter of immigrants and the mother of a toddler, but she was disconnected from her own feelings and had little patience for the feelings of others. And all that changed when life handed her a trifecta of losses. Her husband died of an accidental drug overdose and her parents' deaths followed in quick succession. Layla wrote her book, Strong Like Water, to talk about her life and her healing um, and, and how she stopped leading so much from her head and began to lead with her heart. And as she can, reconnected to her heart one painful step at a time, she realized that she became a better leader, a better mother, and a better person. So I have been talking about this for the last several years about leading from your heart and feeling more from your heart and being silly and loving. And so we really connected on this level. And I hope you all really enjoy this episode with her. I, I know I did. And check out her book, Strong Like Water. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Layla Taraf. Hi, and welcome to the same 24 hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. Today's guest is Layla Taraf. Did I get that right? Got it right. Got Good it right. Job. Hi, Layla. Welcome. Hello. I'm so glad you're here. Um, you have quite a story, quite a story um, from beginning to current. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Should we start with the career highlights because you've got some pretty awesome, you know, you were the what chief people officer, I believe for Pete's coffee. Um, so what was that like? It was great. I I mean, as I write in my book, I was feeling like quite the imposter when I got the role because, um, I had really fallen into HR, while I was at walmart.com and learned the job, you know, on, on the fly. And then all of a sudden I landed this big job at a public company with, you know, a much beloved brand. And yeah. I was scared. I thought, Oh, I might've bitten off a little more than I could chew here. <laughs> um, but it was amazing. We had, uh, I was able to build a great team. We had a very uh, professional uh, leadership team and, um, and now that I'm leading in 2020 and 2021, 2010 sounds, it just feels like it was, you know, 1950 Pleasant Village. It was just already feels like it was, uh, you know, social media had just started, um, mm-hmm. 
and it just was a different way of working. Things were a little bit slower, although it didn't feel that way at the time. And um, it was a wonderful experience to take this local regional brand and that, that really a lot of people had this amazing personal connection to and think about how to grow it uh, into a national brand. Um, so it was, it was great. Awesome. So your book, your new book, Strong Like Water, show it, show it to the, um, yes, to the picture. Good, good. Um, I was telling Layla before we uh, got started that I had her book because she sent me a copy and um I packed it to move and it has not surfaced <laughs> since. So I'm so sorry. But, that, that will happen. Um, <laughs> it will happen. It will surface and then I will post a picture. Um, but what, I was listening to an interview with you on, I think it was Mike Robbins podcast. And he said something really interesting about you. He said, you told him years ago, you wanted to write a book. And he said, I've heard that from so many people, but she actually went and did it. And I think that's so great because I'm in like the same boat. I, I was like, I always want to write a book. And then I just went and did it. And when people come to me and they say, I want to write a book, I'm like, just go write a book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just go write it. But what led you to write your book? I mean, let's talk about your story because there was a lot of transformation in your life. Like after you were a leader at Pete's and you seemed to have it all, but inside there was a, a lot of grief and a lot of struggle. So kind of walk us through your, your story that led to you sure. writing this book. Sure. I still remember where Mike and I were exactly when I said, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> and he goes, hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, so my, my story and the story that um, I unpack in Strong Like Water is up until um, my first year at Pete's, life had been pretty good for me. And um, I was pretty lucky. I was ha happy, healthy. I was newly married. I had a three-year-old daughter. Uh, I had a career that was really sort of firing on all cylinders. And then uh, after my first year at Pete's, my husband passed suddenly. Um, and then 15 months later, my father had a stroke and in his late sixties and died. And then my mother shortly thereafter. So for me, um, I know everyone has loss in their life, but those three losses that came pretty packed together, um, really shook me into uh, realizing how I had been holding myself um, up until that point. And mm. uh, I, I say that I had this hero persona, you know, I, I, my parents were immigrants, we came from Beirut when I was seven. And, um, you know, very, very strict parents, my father was very tough. And so I, I learned to be super capable and not ask for anything and keep my needs to a minimum. And I'm you know, talking they, about me, Layla. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what's so wonderful about telling your story because you realize like, oh, I'm not the only person like this. Right. For a lot of us overachievers, it's, it's an affliction that hits all of us. And, and the thing is, there's a lot of really great things that come from that. It's not sure. like it's, it's all bad. There are some very wonderful qualities. And uh, I've been giving these presentations of late called the stories that save us until they hold us back. And wow. so my story was, I can do anything. If I want to write yeah. a book, I can write a book. I'm strong. I'm capable. I'm a great problem solver. Just let me at it. And 
those are all great, you know, great things to be in great qualities. But when you lean into them so far that you don't make space for any sort of vulnerability <clears throat> or, um, or anything negative or bad to happen in your life. I mean, I whitewash things so quickly. I reframe things to the positive in a nanosecond. Mm. And uh, when you do that for a period of time, those, uh, those negative emotions and those icky feelings, sadly, they don't just disappear. They get squashed down. Right. Right. And, and uh, for me, I had had you know, pretty much 40 years of unprocessed <laughs> feelings, because anytime I felt anything uh, negative in my life, I just brushed it away and I didn't deal with it. And so I ended up having a very sort of superficial, very, very um, uh, brittle, emotional uh, life. And when I lost my husband and my daughter was three and she started to cry and <laughs> want to healthily grieve her father dying, I realized, I don't know how to do this. Mm. And I felt very inadequate. And I still think that had I not had my daughter, I, I may not have actually broken down and done the work and learned how to reconnect with my emotions and allow myself to grieve because it's not fun, right? It's, right. it's years of, of, of just being sad and, and, you know, grief, you never know how it comes. It can come in big waves, small waves right. out of the blue. And, and that's uh, the beauty about children because they will hold up a mirror. It's yeah. either a mirror or a sledgehammer, <laughs> one <laughs> or the other. But, you know, I think when you said that, that really resonated with me as well, because I had all this time when, um, we, before I had kids to like get in shape and to exercise. And I never did. Like, I just, didn't do it. But the second I get a two and three-year-old and I'm looking at them, I'm thinking, oh, I got to do something about this. <laughs> I've got to get moving. And, and as they get older, you see them process emotions and you see them leaning into it. And the, just like you said, you know, she's grieving and, or I see my children having anger and I'm like, what is this anger? I did not express such anger at this age. What is wrong with right. you? And I'm like, oh no, this is what's supposed to happen. They're supposed to do this, you know? So I get it. It's such an amazing thing to be taught these very basic lessons by your children, but you have <laughs> to sort of be aware of it. It's like, oh, they just come out of the womb as feeling human beings yeah. and it is our um, conditioning and, and the narrative that we adopt in our lives that um, have us start to uh, act in all these distorted ways that we think we can't really show up and, and be authentic in how we're feeling. Yeah. And I love that we're talking about it now, right? Sort of more broadly, you know, thank you, Brene Brown. Sure. Uh, and we're not only in our personal lives, but our professional lives, uh, but it's a journey. Yeah, for sure. So during the time when you were stuffing everything down, your emotions, <laughs> did you have yeah. unhealthy coping mechanisms or was like work your coping mechanism? Cause I drank, I, I'm five years, I'm five and a half years sober. Um, exactly. I did all sorts of unhealthy behaviors to cope with my uh, issues. So what about you? Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, uh, they were healthy. They were quote healthy mm -hmm. in that it's, uh, much harder to say to somebody who is 
kind of controlling everything that um, something's going wrong. My husband drank, right? It was very easy to see, mm, you're drinking too much. But to look at me, I had it all. I had life by the, you know, like I was working. I was a great mom. I did this, I did that. So for me, it was hidden, right? Mm -hmm. I felt disconnected inside and I felt I can, I started to feel more and more empty inside. And, you know, what I, what I learned was I was, I was trying to cut off the lows by not feeling the bad feelings, but what ended up happening was I cut off the highs too, so that I was never really joyous or happy because I kind of numb myself to life in general. And I think that's why it took 40 years. Had I fallen apart, had I not been able to keep it together, um, I probably would have healed a lot sooner. (laughs) I think the, I think the universe was like, she is one tough mother. We we need to, I really think the universe gives you what you need to grow. And I might've been able to work my way through one loss, but three in a row, I think that's what it took for me to be like, oh, I've had this all wrong my whole life. Oh my gosh. No, I I feel, I feel what you're saying so much. Cause you say 40 years, it was like 38 for me. Um, (laughs) and same, it just, it was this feeling I was all head. I mean, one of my friends is a psychotherapist and she says, you're just like a floating head, you know, not attached to your body. Not it's certainly your heart is nowhere in the room, right? It's like in a box. You put it away years ago, not safe, (laughs) not safe to show this to anyone. We're going to put that away. And so a lot of what you talk about in your book, even though I don't have it, but I've gathered from your conversations is about accessing that vulnerability that is your heart and seeing that um, the feelings of others and compassion for others. Cause I I love the thing you sent over to me that said you had little patience prior to these losses. You had little patience for the feelings of others. And yes. that, that's, uh, I kind of was like, oh, maybe I should talk to her because <laughs> I, I feel that too. Yeah. So talk well, about that a little bit. It, it, I, I've thought of my big head too, like a lollipop, like this is my thing. Um, when you generally, when you have a strong feeling or when you're being triggered by something in front of you, it is usually because it is something inside you that you cannot embrace. So that's been my learning. So if you, if I had little patience for the feelings of others, it's because I had little patience for my own feelings. Mm. So if I don't allow myself to whine, I'm certainly not going to let you whine in front of me. <laughs> right. And, and so while I look, I still don't like it when people whine, but it's not this, oh, this thing that's inside because it's like, now I try to understand. I try not to judge. I try to show a little empathy. I try to uh, ask myself, gosh, you know, what's happening in that person? I don't do it all the time. Right. But I, I have those tools in my toolkit. And when we are working from this subconscious place where we're not allowing ourselves to be more integrated head, heart, body, then we will not have patience for others. One of my biggest learnings when I was in my coaching program, and I talk about it in my book, is um, we were doing this um, this um, mock coaching. We had the somatic coach 
uh, somatic therapists come in and talk to us how um, it's possible to actually physically feel what someone else is feeling while you're um, coaching them. And everybody paired up and, and uh, afterwards, uh, my coaching instructor said, okay, well, how was that for you? What did you feel? And people were saying, oh, well, when Mark said that he was um, really sad, I felt this tightness in my chest. And when Susie said she was scared of the hairs on the back of my neck start, and I'm like, what? Are I just they felt talking annoyed. Like, exactly. And I yeah. raised my hand and I'm like, well, I think I'm just such a head person that um, I, you know, I didn't feel any of this. And he said, and this was one of these big ahas. He said, I quite disagree. I think you're very much a heart person and your head comes to the rescue of your heart. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you yes. Think of yourself as a head person and someone says, no, no, actually you have a big, beautiful heart, but it's so delicate and so sensitive that your head comes to rescue it. Instead of you thinking I have a little puny heart, that difference in how I thought about myself just shattered my self view uh, and just got me to break open. I don't, I don't know if that lands in the same way. Oh, it does. It really does. It really does. And, and I think, you know, the, the analogy I always have is, um, yoga. So I avoid yoga, like the plague, because (laughs) I go there about halfway through somehow I'm in my heart and my breath and my body and by Shavasana at the end, I'm weeping and I'm like, I don't want anything to do with this shit. Like even yesterday I did, I was, did it in the living room. Cause and by the end I'm crying. I'm like, this is garbage, but that <laughs> resonates with me because I think it is, you know, when I was a kid, when I was little, I just hurt for people. I remember seeing like homeless people and I, and I would be five and I'm like, what can we do? Can they come live with us? And I remember that in somewhere and I don't, you know, I probably need to get some more therapy for it, but somewhere I was just like, okay, this, this is not safe to show this big, beautiful heart of mine. Yes. Yes. Not safe only in yoga. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so awesome that you remember that, right? Cause then we fool ourselves and thinking that we're not feeling people when in reality, it is those of us that are so sensitive, that are so feeling that we feel like we need to hide it because uh, it, it's too much for us. We can't take yeah. it. And so we put this layer of this intellect over it. And what I've learned is you can actually work on strengthening your heart. So it's not so scary to show it. And that's why you cry in yoga. I think that is the process of strengthening your heart. And the only way it happens is by allowing yourself to release these emotions that you haven't, that you haven't released, which can be really annoying, (laughs) but that is the journey. And I think now someone will tell me a story and I'll just start to tear up. Oh my gosh my inner critic before would have been on full, like Layla, get a hold of yourself. And now I just, I just allow it and it's okay. And so I'm sad. So what? Like big darn deal. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, Um, and that's my kids. You know, this is interesting too, because have you seen Ted Lasso on Apple? I Uh, love that show. So I watched it and I was like, 
this, and I don't watch a ton of TV, but Ben Bergeron, who's a CrossFit coach, he never watches TV. And he said, he watched Ted Lasso and he recommended it. I said, well, then I'm going to watch this thing. I loved it. I watched it so much. And I told my kids, I was like, we have to watch this together, even though I know it's a little inappropriate, but nothing they don't see on TikTok. Um, (laughs) So we started watching it and they're loving it. And but the scene, you know, spoiler alert, where um, his wife comes over and, you know, he says, I'm letting you go. And I'm like, you know, I'm just crying. I've seen it before. It's the second time. And I'm holding my son. We, he was sitting like with me. I had my arm around him. He's like, why are you crying? And I'm like, it's just my heart. My heart's just out. And both of my kids are like, why are you crying? And I'm like, hold <laughs> on. We're going to have a meeting. It's okay to cry. Like, do you think it's not okay to cry in this house? <laughs> like, where'd you get that from? And I'm like, Oh, (laughs) got it. But it's interesting because that showing your heart to others gives them permission to show their heart. But I realize I've I've created two little tough turtles, right? You know, just by osmosis, these two kids, they got little heart shells and um, by seeing it. So I'm like more Ted Lasso, (laughs) more yoga. Ted Lasso, exactly. (laughs) And, And I, th- I think two things I realized as I started to be more able to show my emotions. One is it takes tremendous courage to be open like that. So I, I you know, I, everybody says this, but you don't really get it until you, until you yourself experience it. It's not weakness to show vulnerability. Okay. You're like, yeah, yeah. But it feels like it is. Right. And, and what I realize now is no, actually I'm being super brave in in showing you like my broken parts. I, I I still have like when my friends say, oh, I read your book. I'm still like, oh, oh me okay. too. <laughs> like, are you going to judge me? Because I still can't believe I just put it out there on these bad decisions I've made and all these things. And more often than not, they will, it, we will have a deeper, more meaningful conversation than we have had maybe ever. And it, it, it continues to be a, a, um, an example of when you show yourself, when you are courageous enough to show your broken bits, then you're really telling others that I'm accepting your broken bits too, and they will go deeper with you. And I'm, I'm feeling it time and time again. And it's, it's the gift. I mean, for me, the gift in writing, one of the gifts in writing this book is that it is bringing me closer to people I've known for decades. Uh, I, I keep getting emails and texts saying, oh my gosh, Layla. And it's not just women. I thought it would be mostly women. It's mm. as many men as women. Uh, because I think for men also, they you know, they're told a story, which you got to be strong and you can't show weakness. You know, it's, it's a different flavor than, than, you know, what women generally sort of culturally hold, but everyone's got this thing inside them that tells them that they can't be who they really are. And I think the more of us that show like, this is really who I am. And I still struggle with this and I probably always will be. And, you know, will you love me anyway? (laughs) If we all do that, then every, all this, crap that we're dealing with, I think falls, falls away. Right. Just do that. And the answer to the question is a lot of people will say, not only will I love you anyway, I'll love you more. And some people will say no. (laughs) And, and the, the information you get from that is okay. They're not ready. Those aren't your people anyway. They can't hear. And and what I've realized, because I wrote my book year of no nonsense is very, 
you know, I laid it all out on the line and I woke up publication day and was like, what have I done? Stop it. You know, know, it was that kind of thing. And then I heard from a lot of people that grew up in church, um, because there's a lot of stuff about my experience in church in there. And they were like, oh my gosh, Meredith, me too. And then a lot of people were like, delete block unfriend. I was like, oh, okay. So that hurt you know, that hit something in them. I'm like, poke, poke. Um, but it, it is interesting because not everyone is ready to receive your message, <laughs> listen to your message, understand it. And it's not, and that's fine. That's been my journey over the last you know, two years is that's fine because yes. there's so many more people who need to hear it yes. or need to experience, um, that, you know, we, I, I almost want to come up with a new word for vulnerability because it's like, I let's know, just call it trees or something. So because, much. You know, I hear you, it so I hear much, you. but it's true. It's true. It I had, um, I, I, I experienced the same thing. It's gosh, it's amazing how many similarities. And again, this is what happens when you speak your truth. You're like, Oh, <laughs> we're not so different. <laughs> oh, you too. Um, <laughs> my closest friends that, that were, were my business school friends when I, when I, when Daniel, my husband died, they're the ones that have been the least sort of, um, I would say interested in the book and my story. And it's really hurtful for me for a while. And then one of them said to me just the other day, she said, I want you to know, I'm really proud of you, but you know, my way of dealing with things is not to deal with them. So I just can't go there. And I, it made me cry. (laughs) But I was like, okay, such a reminder that she's not judging me. It's not about me. It's about Mm -hmm. what's going on with her. And again, it was just such a great reminder. You know, when we feel hurt because others don't react the way we want them to. And, and, and she was basically, she had the courage to say, Hey, I'm super proud of what you've done, but I can't read it because I can't go there. Um, that amazing. Yeah. And I don't know if you watch friends, but I'm just using all these pop culture references today, but (laughs) there's that episode where Joey Tribbiani puts the book in the freezer because he's scared of it. Um, He's like, I think it's the shining, like Stephen King's the shining and he's reading it and he puts it in the freezer and they're like, why are you putting in the freezer? He's like, I don't know. It just needs to go away. And I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, I got to chapter two, which in my book is about childhood and you know, looking at the past to figure out who you are. And they're like, nope, in the freezer, (laughs) we put it in the freezer. And the way I've kind of framed myself and tell me if this resonates with you, it's like your book strong, like water is on someone's shelf. And there will probably come a time, maybe it's six months from now, maybe it's four years from now where they pull it off when they're ready. And I think the same thing about my book, maybe they'll go, you know, defrost it. (laughs) (laughs) and keep going when they're ready. And, um, that's all you can do, right? You can only put yourself out into the world in that authentic self and space and say, here I am. I'm just telling you what's been going on with me. Hope it helps. (laughs) Love Meredith. (laughs) Like that's the way I look at it. It's like, I I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and I think what's so amazing um, in all of us telling our own stories, you know, that saying, um, when the, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, it's like, we all have our own filters on the world and we need to hear, um, a message in 
you know, in a way that resonates with us. And so maybe, um, you know, some people, when they read your book, it's like, oh, it touches a nerve and I can't read that. But when I'm ready, I'm going to go. And maybe mine doesn't do anything for them or vice versa. So I think all these personal, for us to continue to tell all of our personal stories of our own awakening, really our own unpacking of who are we really at our core? I love this Ram Das saying where he says, in the end, we're all just walking each other home. Like I just, oh. I just love that, right? And our stories might all be very different on, on at the highest level and what people see, but in the end, we're all just trying to figure it all out here. Right? Okay, I felt that in my body. What does it mean? <laughs> You're seeing my heart, stop. Yeah, no, well, I felt I think that. I'm speaking, I'm speaking the truth. Right. Right. So how do you think showing your heart, being vulnerable makes you a better leader, a better mother? I mean, there's the obvious like head response to that. Well, when you show your feelings, people show theirs, but like in your heart, why does it make you a better person? Do you know what I mean? Like what I'm asking, like, what is it in you personally that makes you feel like you lead better and you love more? I think there's a real deficit in trust these days in general. And I definitely think it exists in our country. It's so divisive. And I think our companies are a microcosm of that. And I mean, I've been working now for 25 years. So I saw what it was like in the 90s, almost 30 years, 90s, 2000s, and now. And um, there's a real lack of trust And I've done a little focus group with um, some of the folks on my team and we have a really young company. So most of the people who work for me are like, you know, 10 to 20 years younger than me. And I had a conversation and I said, explain to me how you see things. And it's this millennial mentality. You know, they're like, well, we think the baby boomers um, basically, um, you know, uh, made all this money, you know, sort of unbridled capitalism. Now the economy is, you know, it, we can't buy a house. Real estate is so expensive. Uh, global pandemics, um, uh, the planet is dying and nobody cares. So they feel like they, um, that the, the boomers, you know, just wrote checks they couldn't cash. And now the mm. millennial generation has to deal with, with all of this. And, I couldn't disagree. They're not so wrong, right? Yeah. So there's this real mistrust. And I think when you are open and you show your vulnerability and you admit you don't have the answers, it helps them to feel like they can trust you if you do it consistently. I mean, if you're being insincere and you say one thing and you do the other, of course not. Um, but I think, um, you know, this last year having to figure out what to do with COVID, I, we immediately went to weekly all hands and every all hands, I would say, I don't know what is going to come next. Uh, but what I, what I did was I established sort of guiding principles, like what was important to us. So even though we didn't know what was happening, I said, our first priority is everyone's health and physical health and safety. We will never compromise that. So whatever decision we make, whatever happens, that's number one. Number two, the health of the business, because if we don't take care of the business, then you don't have a job. And number three was broader emotional um, well-being, you know, um, mental health. 
Um, and, and so I, I established these principles and anytime we make a decision around now returning to work or, or, um, you know, um, the, just the transition, I, I go back to these principles and, and I test myself, am I still living by these? And so I think, um, I think that makes people feel a little, um, a little safer in a very unsafe time. And, um, I don't yeah. know. I think it's just human. And the other thing I see is that employees sometimes, especially when you're in HR, it's so easy to make HR this, you know, like the, 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 the man and someone putting you down. And I think when you put a human face on it, which is, it's just me and, you know, a few people behind me who are trying to get it right. Then I think they empathize more with you as well. We talk a lot about empathy, which is it's important for managers and leaders to be empathetic, but it's also important for employees to be empathetic with their leaders. Like mm. no one's dealt with this before. So we we right. kind of all need to cut each other some slack. I tell my kids that all the time because, you know, they'll give me a hard time about something. I said, this is the first time I have been a mother to a 13 <laughs> and a 12 year old. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, calm down. And they think that's the funniest thing. That is but funny, right? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I if I compassion. lose it with my daughter um, and I realize like, oh my gosh, I've done this a couple of times where I'll go back to her and I'll say, uh, so that was not about you. That was about me. Here's what happened. You, you weren't doing your homework. And I thought she's not going to do her homework. She's not going to pass this class. She's going to flunk out of school. She's not going to get a job and she's going to be homeless. And she goes, that's what you thought. I'm like, yes, yes. And she goes, oh my God, <laughs> but it made me feel her- sorry for us. <laughs> <laughs> but at least it did. It made her realize like, I wasn't mad at her. I was reacting to a story. I was telling myself right. that that wasn't true. <laughs> right. And I think with parenting too, like these kids know that we're not perfect. Like they're very clear on that. Right. Yet a lot of parenting is led so much from the head that we walk around and pretend like we know what we're doing. We've got it together. And I think vulnerability in parenting is the greatest gift, like really being playful and laughing. Like I drove my daughter to CrossFit this morning and every time I park a car, she's horrified. Like it doesn't, I'm not a bad parker. My husband's the bad parker for the record. Um, but every time she's I park, car, really she, yes, she's just horrified. And so today I, you know, I'm backing up and, and I see her and I'm like, whatever, you know, whatever. And so we go into CrossFit, we come out, she, she made fun of me because I couldn't do one of the movements in in the CrossFit. So she's like, mom, when did you get so old? And I'm like, I don't know, but I, you know, it's a week, but we joke about that. Right. But anyway, as we're walking out to the car, I see the car, everyone else has left. And there it is like half up on a curb, <laughs> you know, the front of it. And I said, was right. up parking. I said, who did that? She's like, you are the worst Parker. And we laughed about it. Right. And that's the small mm-hmm. stuff, but I have yeah. noticed that me being able to laugh at how ridiculous I am sometimes is a bridge to that heart. And it allows yeah. me to, you know, I, I don't know. I, and I, I've got a 12 and 13 year old ask me when they're 16 and 17, if I still have it together, cause I don't know, but it is that ability to not take yourself so seriously yes. and show your heart that you're a terrible Parker and you acknowledge I it. think it's a great, <laughs> no, I think it's a great story. It's a great, st- I think I see where parents and kids get off on the wrong track as parents try to show that they're perfect. 
And kids know that that's not true. And I think like, I think that's a generational thing. Like my parents never admitted that they were wrong ever. ever. And I try really, really hard when I make a mistake or when I realize something and it, it, it always does end up being funny because if you, if they call you on it, you're like, Oh yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) Then then it's kind of funny. Right. And you make space for that, for them to be able to do it too. And I mean, you can just have the funniest jokes. Like I had some Botox done down here on my lip and there was a bruise and I was putting Stella to bed and she said, what is on your face? And I said, well, it's a bruise. And she's like, I thought you had chocolate for like two days. And I said, <laughs> chocolate, why, why wouldn't you, I was like, number one, why wouldn't you tell me if I had chocolate on my face for two days? <laughs> number two, you know, so we laughed about that. And then this morning when we were leaving Starbucks, um, I, I had my coffee. I said, I think I'm gonna put some chocolate in there. <laughs> you know, I just wiped my hand yeah. and she's like, I, what is wrong with you? But we've had so much fun in it, but it's because of heart it's not my brain. Like my brain would be horrified that, you know, I look like I have chocolate on my face. Um, but it is that, and that's new for me. I keep talking about it because it's taken me a minute to unlock that heart. Me too. We're, we're exactly the same. It feels so good though. Right. It feels, I feel like I have so much more space to play around with. And, and, And the other thing is, um, I, I wasn't very good at listening to my body, like the signals that were coming from my body either. And now um, I, Mm. I say all the time, I'm actually, I'm actually running a course right now for my retail team. And a lot of what I say is pay attention to what lights you up and what energizes you and pay attention, what depletes you of energy and what, like, if you see it, you kind of like back away from it because there is so much wisdom and intelligence in our bodies as well. Um, and you know, like if, if you're, if you're, if you're trying to lift something and it's too heavy, your body's telling you, if you don't listen to it, you do it anyway, it gets hurt. Right. And <laughs> right. so, um, I, I am, I, I am learning that, um, when I have, when I have cognitive dissonance where I, I want something, but then there's something inside me that's, that's, uh, that feels like it's a resistance. I try to pause and pay attention and notice like, okay, what is going on where before I was just like, Zoom, I would yes. just will it to happen. And now I, I try to pause a little and say, okay, what else is happening here? Is there something else that wants to come up? And especially if I am, um, if, if, if I have to have to make a big decision, right. Um, you know, do, do I want to, well, we moved to France for a year. Do I want to move to France or not? And I sit with that idea and I think about it and does it light me up? Does it energize me or does it make me go, Oh God, no. Right. And that's, that's how I make all my big decisions now is I ask myself and I pause and I'm quiet and I listen and how's my body feeling. Uh, in fact, um, uh, someone I just met, his name is Scott shoot. He works for LinkedIn. He's the um, head of mindfulness and compassion. <laughs> yes. We have these titles now. Yes. And he just wrote a book called the, the full body. Yes. And it's, and if you tune into your body and your somatic intelligence, as they call it, soma is the Greek word for, for body, it gives you a lot of information. It just makes you smarter. Like we don't only have our head, we have our heart and we have our body. So let's just use all the intelligence we have. Right. And that's where we get into trouble um, is when we don't pay attention to that because 
we have so many clues. Like when you're around someone and you're just like, oh, <laughs> it, you know, it's easy, it's easy to um, push through, do the meeting or whatever. But, you know, maybe next time make it coffee instead of lunch. And how do I protect myself and be compassionate? But the, you're right. It's all these different clues coming at us and um, we get into trouble and we just keep plowing forward. And that's, that's the begin. That's the prior us, right? It was like, get your head down, push, push the sled and go. And now it's like, oh, when the sled is just stuck and you're still there, just yeah. not moving it. Why is yeah. the sled not moving? <laughs> Okay. I think I'll pay attention. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so when, let me ask you this and this might, you you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but when you lost your parents, Mm -hmm. how was the grieving process and and learning to tune into your heart? Cause I noticed at the beginning, you said your dad was hard on you and he Mm -hmm. was, you know, how did you go through like moving through your childhood and your past and grieving yet growing and kind of that process? My dog keeps barking. I don't know if you hear oh, it. Okay. There's um, always a puppy. There's always something. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could say, you know, smoothly, but it was like a street fight. I, <laughs> I, I really resisted it. I, um, you know, some, you know, my dad, um, he, his father was very tough and abusive. So my dad grew up in that kind of home. And what I learned uh, later in life was that he was sort of the the black sheep in the family. So he got the brunt of it. And so he Mm -hmm. had all this hurt inside him. But of course, I didn't see that. I just saw somebody who was yelling and kind of mean. And and so I grew up in a house where I was kind of walking on eggshells all the time because you just never knew when he was going to lose his temper. And so I, you know, I chose to be a good girl and get good grades and to minimize my needs and be really small. And so a lot of my learning was to, um, (laughs) it sounds so simple now, but was to remind myself that I have needs. Mm. (laughs) I I remember when I went to see a therapist after, um, after my husband died, who I had seen 10 years earlier and he was kind of rough on me and he's like, well, you didn't learn, learn your lesson. And, and, um, we got to this, we, we could finally got to this point where I I'm like, wow, I realized that I have needs. And, and he said, when you, when you act like you have no needs, how do they get met? I thought, I never thought of that. <laughs> right. If, if, if we act like, oh, you know, I used, I used to say, oh, I'm low maintenance. I'm not one of those high maintenance girls. And, and I, and, you know, it was, and this is in my twenties, I was kind of judgy, like, you know, and it's like, well, that's silly. Why would you say that? Why would you make yourself to be somebody who doesn't need anything? Cause then what ends up happening is people don't actually try to help you, which ends up reinforcing this notion that nobody's there for you. It becomes right. part of the self-fulfilling prophecy. And so for me, it was, um, it was a real journey of noticing when I was living uh, inside of this limiting belief that wasn't true, that I'd made up as a way to protect myself because of how I was raised and then sort of sit with it and say, okay, well, maybe (laughs) if I, if I show that I have some needs, which is super scary because I, you know, it was super scary. I learned because I, I, it was tied to the memory that my parents didn't meet my needs. 
Right. Ding, ding, right? ding. Yep, exactly. And so, but then you realize, well, yes, for five-year-old Layla, that was hard. But, you know, for grown-up Layla, not so hard. It's okay. Right. I got it. And I think what happens is when we um, when we have these unresolved childhood wounds, we get parachuted back whatever age we are back to that original age. And we just think, you know, like five-year-old Layla can't handle the, can't accept the knowledge that her parents aren't really emotionally available to her. And so, you know, 50-year-old Layla, you know, (laughs) it's okay. I got it. (laughs) Right. But you have to, you have to remember that you're not that small child anymore. Right. And I think where we get caught up. And when I talked about, like, it took me 38 years, that was when 38 year old Meredith was like, Oh, you're not five-year-old Meredith. Like that's when I realized they were two different girls. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It took me that long because, um, and and the, the big turning point for me was that yes, five-year-old Meredith didn't know that she needed to ask that she needed to set boundaries that she needed to say, this is bullshit. (laughs) This is not fair. Like, but 38 year old Meredith was still like, she didn't ask, this. she doesn't yeah. talk. She, you know, and instead like mine came up as a screw you. So all the, like, I would be the good girl, but then I would do like, you know, I would sneak food. I would drink, I would smoke cigarettes. Like I would rebel in ways that I weren't good girl ways. Right. Yeah. But no one really saw it. Or if they did, I denied it, you know? So and to see all that just like laid out on a timeline, Yes. It's like, oh, geez, like the only one you're screwing here is yourself. It's yourself. Oh. <laughs> it's like my, my coaching instructor used to say, you start getting, you start um, um, coming, get, getting on your, uh, being onto yourself. Like yeah. you, you're like, you know, cause you're tricking yourself. Um, right. I remember Mike Robbins said in, in the podcast I did with him, he's like, sometimes I feel like 15 year old Mike. And I think, like, who are these people? My children, my, I can't handle this. And I think of a 15 year old with a wife who's angry at him and his two daughters. Like and big that, Tom Hanks and big. Laugh. Yes. That, I think that's why that movie was so powerful, right? right? Because somewhere inside of us. And in fact, I have to show you this when my mom died and I had, I cleaned out the house. I found all these pictures and this one picture that came up was of nine-year-old me, which was exactly my daughter's age. And and this is me right here. And I, like, when I found this picture, I thought, oh, look at me. And, you know, and I, I looked at it and I could see all the hurt in it, but I'm standing Mm. there smiling. And I just reconnected to that little girl and decided I'm going to take care of her. Right. And I think that's the journey for us is we heal by taking care of our, um, of our inner child and through our kids. Right. But I I kept that with me as an artifact, took it with me to France. And I put it at the end of my book, because it's a reminder that we, all of us are this person inside and to be, and we can be gentle with ourselves, even if the world wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's funny because like I opened up the beginning of my book talking about how I found this before picture where Mm. I was doing a weight loss challenge when I was 19 and it was me in my underwear and a sports bra. 
like frowning and all I could see, and which is interesting because I just cut my hair off and my hair was super short in that picture. So maybe I'm just reconnecting to my, like 19 year old <laughs> me. Um, but seeing that picture, number one, I was like, wow, what a banging body. I can't believe I was doing a weight loss challenge, <laughs> like A, um, but B, to give that part of me love because I did not love her. I did not, you know, care for her. She was just trying to figure things out in all these destructive ways. And it's just really interesting when you can do that, you know, people roll their eyes at inner child work, but it's true. I got news for you. Your inner child's in there, whether or not you want to admit it or not. So you might as (laughs) well like start to talk to him or her. Right. Um, But it is that compassion that we can, when we can have compassion for all the stages of ourselves, we can have it for others. Louise Hay, who was the founder of, of Hay House, which does the Hay books, she said, like in her 80s, she said, I've been doing this spiritual stuff for a long time, this personal growth. And she said, I can tell you it comes down to one thing, and it is self-love. Mm-hmm. And when you embody, when, when you learn to love yourself and embody love, that emanates into everything. And I feel compelled to say one thing based on what you just said. Um, when I, when I first started my certification to get my coaching, uh, my coaching certification, uh, and I was coming at it in my very sort of head-based way. And I went to my instructor before I was going to coach somebody. And I said, okay, I figured it out. Here are all the things wrong with Adam. And I was kind of giving him my point by point. And he looked at me like this. And I thought, "Mm, I'm saying something bad. I don't know what. And And I, and I said, what? And he goes, Layla. I'll never forget this. He said, coaching is not about searching for what is wrong with someone and trying to fix it. Coaching is seeing what is beautiful in them and getting them to see it too. Yes. And so if you're like, oh crap, I don't want to do this then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but try to what you just said, if you're trying to fix yourself. Yep because you're not good enough, uh, then you're going to try to be fixing every, right? Again, you're projecting, you're always projecting what it is and you're thinking inside yourself. So you accept yourself, you love yourself, you cut yourself some slack, you, you know, you have a little humor with yourself, you know, when your inner, inner critics on full tilt, you're like, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Elizabeth Gilbert in, in Big Magic. I love that she writes this one part uh, when she starts uh, writing a book, she's, she says, um, fear, uh, um, what did, what did she say? Oh, shoot. Now I've lost it. Um, I've lost it. I'll, I'll have to send it to you. It's, it's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Send it to me. Oh my gosh, Layla. I didn't know we were going to be such uh, soul sisters here, I but, know. Um, you know, you just raised a good point at the beginning that we are, are all connected more than we think. And, um, so congratulations on your book. I know it's been out what April 13th, I think. So it's yeah. still, still fresh. I'm sure you still get the the night sweats and the panics, which, you know, that'll go away soon. (laughs) You wake up like, Oh, I did that. You know? Yeah. What, what is your learning? What is your advice? What's your learning? Um, well, so my learning was, I had two parts, like leading up to the publication of my book, I edited heavily. I wrote everything I needed to say. Well, then my editor edited heavily and then I edited even further. 
And that was the right call. I, there's nothing that I wish I wouldn't have said. And there's nothing that I feel like that got left out that should have been public. You know what I mean? So that was like the A lesson. And then the B lesson is it's out in the world and there's nothing you can do about it. The end. <laughs> and I think someone said, um, who was, it? oh, it was Margaret Atwood. I took her master class, which I highly recommend to anyone who's going to do um, fiction. I took it because I'm Meredith Atwood. She's Margaret Atwood. And it was kind of a funny joke. And then because people call me Margaret all the time and I'm like, no wrong Atwood. Um, but her master class, she said, you know, when you write a book, it's, it's yours. It's yours and yours and yours until you let it go. And she said, once you let it go and it's in the world, it's no longer yours. And so that really helped me oh, wow. because I stopped owning that book. Like I, when I, when she said that, I thought, oh, that really helps. And so when it's not no longer mine, it's the readers. Um, therefore, what is also not mine are book reviews. <laughs> also not mine. That's theirs. Um, that's right. And, you know, just the sales, the marketing, like that whole part, it's not mine. I gave it, I let it go when I published it. And so that's been helpful because, you know, like your book, my book is that it was everything. It was my whole heart and soul. And, you know, even the idea of writing another book for me is like, I don't know if I have anything else to say, you know, I really feel like I said it all. Um, but yeah, I think that's the lesson. The lesson and the learning is when you let it, when you publish it, it's no longer yours. That is a great lesson. That yeah. is a great lesson. And I'm also feeling like when you bare your soul like that, it, um, it's a great way of, um, making sure that you, you can't really hide anymore. Like, <laughs> yes, I, right. I, right. I, I, I yeah. feel like even if I don't feel like showing myself or I, maybe I'm going to put on my capable persona today. It's like, can't, <laughs> there's right. a story out there that shows who I really, really am. And, um, and I think it's a great way of keeping me honest, honest and authentic. I don't have to be vulnerable all the time. Right. But just to know that that's out there and that's really who I am. It's a good reminder for me. And, um, and as I said, e even my friends who've known me for years, they're like, I never even knew any of this about you. Cause I wouldn't tell them of course. Right. Sure. Right. And so it just shifts everything a little bit. Right. It's like, um, I was a lawyer for 13, 14 years. And when I left the legal profession, I got an arm sleeve on like a tattoo and my tattoo guy was like, you sure you want to get the job killer? And I was like, yes, give me the job killer. <laughs> and obviously like, you don't, you know, it's not a job killer. You can still have tattoos and be in professional industries, but it's kind of that moment wow. when I got the tattoo, I was like, I'm not doing corporate America anymore. I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a writer. And I'm, you know, it's, it's that it's the same thing of writing the book. I, I told my story that's out there. I have tattoos. I don't care what you think anymore. <laughs> this is awesome. me who likes okay, me. Now oh, I'm going to go buy your book. <laughs> I will send right it now. to you. That's what I got your address for. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah. So it's, it's so, so good to be mostly who you are out in the open. Obviously we, we all still have pieces of us that no one really probably wants to right. see, but there, there is, and we may not even see, and to we, be honest, yeah, right? there's always, something. yes, there's always something. Well, Layla, thank you so much. Your book, strong, like water, where can people find it? 
Well, you can find it online um, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or um, Indie Bookshop. You can find it at your local um, bookstores, um, just and everywhere. And if you want to learn you more love your about books. Me, Everywhere yeah. you love your books. And, and and I have a website, LaylaTaraf.com uh, or on Instagram, Layla.taraf. So I'm out awesome. there now. <laughs> Yay. Well, thank you so much, Layla. It was so great to spend time with you, truly. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.